The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Is that of children, of sons. And um, so we're all, he says at this point, um, all of you are sons. Huioi is a Greek. It's the same word used of Jesus, the Son of God. Huios to Theo is used of us, Huioi to Theo. Now, how is it that we become sons of God? And verse 27 says that having been baptized into Christ, and the Greek is enduro, we're literally clothed with Christ. And it's this image is that because we enter, the nature of the relationship we enter in with, with Christ is so all-embracing, God no longer sees us, but sees him. This is, this is the very nature of an exchange which takes place. In other words, that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as sinners. He sees us as righteous because we're clothed with Christ himself. I guess it's like the image of, of someone from the theatre or whatever who takes on the character of someone else and they're not seen for who they really are. This is the image. And if that's true, you see, and this is the issue, if verse 27 is true, that he does not see us, he sees Christ. And verse 28 follows. He doesn't see us as Jews or Gentiles. He doesn't see us as Jews or Greeks. He sees Christ. He doesn't see us as slaves or free. He sees Christ. He doesn't see us as male or female. He sees us what? As Christ. And so, if you are, he says, verse 29, if you are of Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham. Now, who is the seed of Abraham through whom all the world is to be blessed? Christ. Now, this is Paul's concept, that we are, you know, we are the body of Christ and we're heirs according to promise. Now, it's that by becoming sons, we become heirs. We become heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. So all of these verses speak of our newfound status in the eyes of God. We're not under custody. We're not under instruction. We're no longer babes. Now we're sons. In baptism, we share Christ's, Christ's own status. Other sex, nation, employment affect our relationship with God. We become equally become heirs of the promise made to Abraham, the promise of God's blessing. Now, if we pause there and understand that this is Paul's statement, um, let's go back for a moment to Genesis chapter 1. And see the nature of the creator order. 
Genesis 1 verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, let him rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. You know, the, the, the word Adam, from which we get man, you know, is a, a generic term covering male and female, and equally made in the image of God and equally given dominion. Verse 28, this is Genesis 1:28. God blessed them, meaning male and female. He said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so on. In other words, dominion is given equally to male and female because they're both Adam, you know, they're both man. They're both of that which God has chosen to give this dominion. Now, if we follow through the stories in Genesis of what follows the creation, in other words, in the order of creation in Genesis 1, we get man, meaning male and female, given common dominion to rule and exercise authority when, where neither male nor female is in submission to one another. In Genesis 1, there's no hint of male dominance over the female. When the fall occurs and sin occurs, um, the if we go to Genesis 3, You get in verse 14 the curse to the serpent. And then in verse 15, you get the curse upon the woman. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between the, her, her offspring and yours. Sorry, and that, this is still referring to the, to the serpent. He'll crush your head and, and your feet. So the woman, he says, I'll increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now this is a curse. This is not a created order. This is the curse. So Adam, and then he gets his own curse, which is the nature of the, the, his, his encounter with the, with the earth and the hard labour he has to do. Now there the curse, that's the curse which comes in the division and dominance and oppression which exists between male and female. Now we go back to Galatians 3, and we find that, as we've just read in Galatians 3, in Christ the curse is broken. And the nature of the curse, which is sin, is whatever is destructive in any relationship is what Christ seeks to overcome. He seeks to overcome the enmity which exists between man and God in that primary relationship. He seeks to overcome the enmity which exists between man and man and violence. He seeks to overcome the, the enmity and the oppression of the female by the male. And what we get here in, in Galatians 3, verse 26, 
27 is Paul saying, you know, in Christ, when we come into a relationship with Christ, there is a restoration back to our status with God at, at Genesis 1, at the creation. Where man, where Adam, male and female, there's, in God's sight, he does not see the gender issue. Now we can, we can uh, you know, wrestle as we've done when I talked through Corinthians and when I talked through First and Second Timothy, looked at the passages which kind of had to be understood by that. But Paul really, his understanding is the nature of the greatness of the work which Christ did on the cross, which was one of reconciliation and the breaking of the curse. And for the purposes of this, he cannot say to women, you are an heir under Jewish culture, if they're still women, if they're still perceived by women. Because under Jewish culture, women were not heirs. The only heirs were the masks. And that was a culture in which property and possessions passed from, son to, from father to son, from father to son to father to son. You couldn't be a woman and be an heir under the Jewish culture, the culture which Paul understood. So the moment he says to them that, that you are neither male nor female and you are an heir and then begins to speak of heirs, you understand the totality of the fact that Paul believes he no longer sees us in our relationship with God in sexual terms. Now, having said that, we turn now to chapter 4, get to 4, verse 1. Paul is going to introduce this time element which says that although you're an heir, it doesn't mean you get it. Does this sense? In other words, what's left to you in the will, you may well be the heir, but there's still, you may have to wait. In other words, there is a total changing of the nature of our relationship with God and our status with God, that ought not to lead us to believe that instantly everything which is done for us in the cross is available to us now. Now, if I were, if I were not teaching Galatians, but say I was doing a teaching on healing, I would, I would stop here and say, therefore, to say, for, for example, that healing is in the atonement, that Christ died for us, not just for our sins, but our sick, sicknesses, that it's that one of the benefits of the death of Christ is healing, I would say, yes, I believe that. It's true. But that does not mean that I can get that benefit now. Yeah, because there's a timeline involved. Yes, it's part of my inheritance. Ultimately, Paul in Romans 8, we talk about the redemption of our body. And I begin to say, well, you can't build a whole theology of healing just on the fact that healing is in the atonement. You've got to understand, well, yes, but is it available to me now? Is it an inheritance I can get access to now? Like I've got two sons and they're, they're, they're of age, they're over 21, but the trouble is they can't get it till I die. 
But if I died when they were eight or ten, they still couldn't get it. So there's the element that we have to explore in terms of Paul's understanding of, of the waiting. So would you like, would you like to uh, we pause just for a little bit? And, and uh, this, this wonderful passage from 23, the end of, of, of Galatians 3, which says if we're really sons, you know, then, then no woman, for example, should approach God in prayer with any sense of I'm only a woman. Or somehow I'm less than the men. Or in somehow God sees me differently. And the issues of prayer and the issues of the nature of the relationship and the issues of the father. Because, you know, we're a mixed cultural group here tonight and we're all grown up in cultures where there are distinctions made and the issue of inheritance between male and female. Increasingly breaking down, but still strong. And in cultures like mine. So maybe one of you would like to ask a question or make a comment further on this. Well, as I say, if I were teaching on healing and I'd want to unpack this whole thing, I, w I would relate the question uh, for the tape is how does the timeline work in terms of, say, something like healing? I'd, I'd make a comment like, well, it's, it's like a solicitor who's the trustee of the will, the executive of the will, and you're the only son and heir, but you're underage you know, and you want to go to university. You can go along, knock on the door, ask for an appointment, and say, look, I want to go to university, I'm the heir. You've got discretion under the will to, to pay educational expenses. Will you help me go through university? And then it's the decision of the executor as to whether or not you do or don't get the money to go to university. And that uh, in approaching God for healing, and that you, but you have every right to ask because you're there. You know, and you have every right to think that the executor will act fairly and with compassion with mercy and these sorts of situations. So you approach it in that kind of way. But you also have the understanding he may choose to say no. You don't have a right to demand, you have a right to ask. And the right to ask begins immediately that you become an heir. It will be at the sovereign will of, of God as to whether he chooses to heal or not. Which is why in a church you pray and you see miracles of healing and you see people die as well. Equally with the same amount of faith. Equally heirs, equally believing in the work of the cross. But God still sits, you know, is still there at the throne as the sovereign Lord exercising whom he'll have mercy on and whom he won't. Um, yeah. You know, as I say, I'm not teaching here on, on healing because it's, it's never simple. <laughs> but this, this issue of inheritance is a very important one for so many of the blessings that we might think of. And where we would say, well, I'm an heir. And one might well say, well, so what? Unless now's the time. All right? So we move on, verse 1. 
Paul says, but I say, for as long as, so long as time as the heir is an infant, it is no different than a slave. That's the thing. Even though he owns the whole estate, you know, or even though he's kind of literally there, he's kind of the lord of it all. Though it's all his, it doesn't, in potentially. This is very important verse speaking about our status with Christ. We need to acknowledge that we're no longer slaves to sin. We've become a child. Nor are we infants kept under the direction and instruction of the law. We've moved on from that. Faith has come into our lives and we've become sons and heirs. But even heirs do not inherit their inheritance until the proper time. In many ways, I, you know, when I first wrote these notes, I used the, I described it as the time between Friday and Sunday. In many ways, the cross has taken place in our life. We've been crucified with Christ. That's Galatians 2. But Sunday hasn't come yet. You know, we've not been raised with our new resurrection bodies. You know, we've, he's not, we've not seen him. And all that Sunday, in a, in a sense, will mean for us. It's a kind of a Saturday experience for us. It's a symbol of the period of our lives between our baptism, which is our death, and our, the resurrection, which is to come. Romans 8, Paul speaks of this period. It speaks of confidence of being heirs. How do we know we're heirs? He says, he says, verse 2, that person is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were slaves under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit in his, of his son in our hearts the spirit whereby we call out Abba Father. So we're no longer a slave but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. And let's, let's have a look at this verse in, in some expanded forms. We turn across to Romans 8. In Romans 8. Verse 16, or verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we look also at Ephesians chapter 1, Verse 13, and it says, You also, this is NIV, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having, and after having believed, you are marked by him with the seal of the, Holy, the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
There is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And the the old King James used to call it, it's this funny term, it's the earnest of our inheritance. Now that's not a word I've heard ever since I read the King James Bible. But it's a sense of that when someone is acknowledged as an heir, there's, there's, there's a seal or a mark applied which is an identification that this person is a recognized heir. It's kind of a deposit given by the trustee to someone which is evidence to everyone that they are recognized heir. And uh, that what is it we receive which gives us the assurance we really are heir, and the answer is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul in Romans 8 makes this bland statement, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. It's that there. And this is, this is now what are we talking about here? We're, we're talking about an inner work of the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. What? We hear the gospel, we repent, we believe, we are baptized, we submit to the Lordship of Christ, And in response to this, after all of that, Paul says, then we are sealed in our hearts with the Holy Spirit. The presence of Christ comes into our life and that's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we know we're a child of God. One last verse, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3. And verse verse 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. And so the Holy Spirit is is a, a tangible evidence that our status has changed. Let me tell you what this transaction is not like. I hear the gospel. I say I'm sorry for my sins. I ask Jesus to come into my life by faith. Because I've said the right words, I believe God has heard me, and I therefore believe that I'm saved. How do I know I'm a child of God? Because I said the right words. That's not. That's not what Paul believes. That's not what John believes. Neither of them believe that we know we're saved on the basis of our theology, of what we believe, and the way we express our belief. He says that that if we have heard the gospel, if we have responded with true repentance, if we have real faith in Christ, then God responds to that by sealing us with the Holy Spirit. And that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the evidence that our faith is real. In other words, it's God's way of affirming to us 
that we really are sons and daughters of God. This is not just something we have to accept by faith. This is something which ought to be real in our hearts and our lives. Because, you know, the truth is, unless the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, we will have no power to overcome sin. It's like we're back in the days of the law. We may know what's right, we know what's wrong, but we'll be totally powerless to overcome it unless the presence of the Spirit of Christ is in our life. But if, and this is the whole argument of Paul in Acts chapter 8, of Romans 8, because if the Spirit of Christ is in us, he is able to set us free as slavery to sin. I, you know, I am greatly concerned today in various aspects of the church, whether it's the evangelical church or whether it's the Pentecostal church, I find the same thing in both. The people who are saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, I'm an heir. And there's no evidence of the work of the Spirit in their lives. There's no, there's no evidence of their life being profoundly changed, of coming, getting victory over sin. There's none of the fruits of the Spirit evident of the Spirit's work. You ask them, well, how do you know you're a Christian? And they said, oh, well, I responded to a gospel call and I went forward and I said, to, I prayed the prayer that I was led to pray for and therefore I'm a Christian. And that's not, Paul, that's not what Paul is saying to us. Paul is saying to us in reality that, that how, John says the same, how do we know that we live in him and keep his commandments by the Spirit which he's given to us? How, how do we know that the Spirit, Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we're a child of God? You know, we live in a day and age of people who are paranoid about experientialism in the church. Well, if there's no experience of God, if there is no experience of the Spirit, there's no church. There may be a group of people sitting around holding philosophical discussions, but it's not the church. Because unless the Spirit of Christ is there, Christ is not there, irrespective of what sing and believe. As I say, this, this is not a... To me, this is not an evangelical thing or a Pentecostalism thing. You can find the same thing in, in all the traditions, the people who go to Bible classes and learn what the Bible says but has no experience of the indwelling Christ. So back to Galatians. So being an heir has its limitations. Verse 7, so we are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you an heir. Now what's Paul's concern? This is the, the, his concerns in terms of the Galatians. His concern is that whilst they're waiting as an heir, whilst they're sons, his concern is they stop living like slaves. That's what, he's, that's what he's looking for in their lives. That they no longer act like slaves, that they act like sons, not as kings. You know, and I've, I've, we go through these fads. I remember one stage people were panning out these badges. I'm a king's kid. You know, I'm a king. I'm a ruler. Well, Paul in Corinthians says, well, I wish that were true that I might rule with you. you know? we, are, we, are in, we are heirs, 
And Paul is quite content, really, if we can move from being slaves to acting like sons. Verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods. And now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn him back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And he kind of lists the signs of, of what the old slavery they were under. He says, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Now let's, I'm, I'm aware of the kind of the, the group that I've got here. Let's, let's take some analogies. So let, let's say you're talking about someone who supposedly converts from Buddhism to Christianity. And as a Buddhist, has been enslaved to going to the temple at the special festivals and offering whatever. And when they, when they abandon Buddhism and become Christians, their whole attitude towards church is the same. No sense of grace, no sense of faith, no sense of acceptance. Still trying to proclaim God and gain his acceptance and continually offering of sacrifice. Still slaves. Verse 11, he says, I fear that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. In other words, he died to, to the, that kind of life. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. What's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So what do you reckon his illness was? Yeah, he, he, had, he had difficulty seeing. He had a, an eye infection. In fact, there's a, there's a, some of the commentators would say that he went to the areas of Galatia, where you get up in the mountains where it's cooler, to, to escape from the humidity to give his eyes a chance to, to be healed. But uh, it seems to be a, an affliction which never left Paul. In fact, one of the end of one of his letters, he says, see with what large red letters I'm writing, common of those with poor eyesight, to authenticate the letter. So they fail to realize that if you're really sons, you don't have to... You stay where the Father gives you freedom to pray, freedom to ask. You're not trying to earn favor through, through the, that nature of religion. Then he says, verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. 
something about the nature of the seduction of zealotry, where the simplicity of faith is initially appealing to us, where in our, in our simplicity we respond in faith to the gospel, we humble ourselves before God, you know, we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in us, we begin to grow. And then when someone comes along to us and offers us a path of spiritual growth, which seems to be more zealous than what we are, that we're attracted to it. We're attracted to it, and in the subtlety of it is that the very nature of it shifts us from grace and faith to a life of such self-surrender and self-sacrifice and self-suffering that we just subtly seduced away from grace into self-righteousness. And it's so appealing. It um, seems to emerge, it's like a... It seems to emerge in the church every 20, 30 years. Knowing the history of, say, Sydney and the Bible-based churches, it... It, it's kind of a, a movement which says, if you'll just be zealous in the way we say, you can be a super saint. You can be an overcomer in some extraordinary way. God will extraordinarily use you. You know, the people who, who get tempted by it, not the backslidden, lukewarm Christians, it's those who are most wanting to be used by God. And, and when it came in the late 30s and again the late 40s and then in the 70s of last century, you know, it was, there were like movements which targeted some of the best and the brightest of the young people in the Christian group. As people came in and began to offer a teaching to them, which would, they were saying, if you really love God, let, let us define for you what zealousness means. And zealousness was, was away from what they'd been taught. In Paul's case, it's, you know, it's toward the law. And may God give us wisdom in this. Because, you know, sometimes it's a movement, but sometimes it's, it's so subtle. It's like an old Christian friend who we've not seen for a long while. And we kind of meet them and there's something different about them. And there's kind of a new intensity of their faith, new zealousness about them. And they say, you know, how's your faith? And, you, and you're honest. You say, well, you know, good days and bad days. Some days are struggle and sometimes it's great. And sometimes God answers my prayer and sometimes the heavens are as brass. And, you know, you're very biblical, all this, you know. And they, and they say, oh, you know, I've entered into the exchange life. What's that? Oh, you know, well, you know, you know, you know Brother Lee, you know, the great Bible teacher. Well, one of his disciples, you know, Witness Lee, you know, you know, he's 
carrying on from where he's gone from. I now go to his church and it's just wonderful, you know. And it's just seductive. It's a seduction. And you, li you listen, to, listen to Paul's language. You know, the, just listen to it. He says, These people are zealous to win you over but for no good. What they want to do is alienate you from us. Isn't, isn't, this, isn't this what happens? Have you, ever, have you ever had an old Christian friend come along to you and say, you know, try and drive a wedge between you and your church and you and your other Christian friends and, you know, because if they can separate you from the influence you're under, they can then exert control over you. It's the nature of the cults. It's, that's what happens. And Paul kind of feels it so strongly. Um, now, before we get to 21, which is the last section we're, we're kind of going to go into, this next section where he, he wants to, he feels the need to revalidate his message with them, which we'll go back to. Um, this, this last section might be, is a very good issue for us to talk about. And uh, we might, for, for a moment, just switch the tape off here. Paul says, tell me you who want to be under the law. Because that's the nature of what they're being done. They're being told faith is not enough. They've also got to become Jews and live under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? And, and let, let me just take, uh, take a side. The, the law... Um, the way a Jew, when writing like Paul writes, when he uses the word law, can be used in about four different ways. Uh, the word law, nomos, can simply mean what we call the Old Testament. He can, he can use it for the scriptures. Uh, it can be used also for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And sometimes when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the five books. Thirdly, it can be used of the ritual law, uh, all the rituals to be observed. And sometimes when he just refers to the law, he's referring to the ritual. And fourthly, it can be used specifically of the Ten Commandments, which is just one small chapter in Deuteronomy. Now, how do you know which of the four different usages is Paul referring to? <laughs> well, the answer is only from context. Yeah, there's no other way. He just, they would just use it in that way. And I suppose it's like our saying the New Testament says. Well, we, we mean it's in the New Testament, but we actually mean it's in a part of the New Testament. And, and it's probably in a book. And I, I like sometimes the gospel writers say, somewhere it says. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like that. Yeah, I do. So, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. So we're in Genesis, right? One by a slave woman, the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. <laughs> I only thought there was one way. 
But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. That's the distinction, natural way and a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. In other words, now, although it's a historical reality this happened, he's going to use it as a picture or as an image. Well, the women represent two covenants. Now, this stop right there. What's a covenant? Covenant is an agreement between two parties where one is making promises and the other is keeping obligations. And as a result of a promise, if the promise, if the obligations are met, the promise is fulfilled. Right? So that's what a covenant is. Covenant is an agreement where one makes a promise to the other. If he does one thing, they'll do another. Um, one could pick it apart a little bit more than that, but there, because normally there's something which happens to, to bind the covenant. He says, Verse 22, Abraham, two sons, one by the slave, one by the free. Son of the slave was born the ordinary way. The son of the free was born as a result of the promise. These things may be taken figuratively, figuratively for the women represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. That's where the Lord has the, the wife. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Now, this is the <laughs> earthly Jerusalem which for Paul stands for the place where the people come from who are continually harassing him and teaching his converts to become Jews. As Jerusalem is is where the Judaizers are coming from. You know, John, it's, like, it's like John speaking of Rome and so on. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bear no children, break forth of, and cry aloud, you have, no, you have no labor pains, because more of the children of the desolate woman are those of her who has no husband. Now you brothers are like Isaac, our children of promise. They get Isaac and Ishmael. So what, now what's, what's Jerusalem which is above? Well, it's, I don't think Paul's actually talking literally about a Jerusalem. Now I'm not saying there isn't a spiritual Jerusalem. We know that from the book of Revelation, book of Hebrews. I'm not saying that. I just think he says it's, he's saying a Jerusalem above is the place where God's promise comes from. In a, in a sense of children of promise, children of the earth, and so on. At that time, verse 29, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Ishmael persecutes Isaac. And it's the same day now. Same now. He's saying, he says that the church particularly the Jewish church, born of the Spirit, is being persecuted um, by the Jews who are staying rigidly adherents to the law. But what does the scripture say? 
get rid of the slave woman and her son, but the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And uh, this is going to kind of set us up for Galatians 5, but right at the beginning, because Paul says, if you live as slaves, you're under the law, you've fallen from grace, you've moved away from faith, and you're not going to share in the inheritance. So the inheritance is only for the promise. Now, do we, do we, you know, the imagery is not that difficult. It's kind of an imagery, figurative imagery. Paul's using this story, which they're all familiar with, in terms of the two children. But what does it mean for us? That's the issue. What does it mean for us? It means that for me, if I'm going to enter into the inheritance, I've got to continue with a simplicity of faith. I'm, my faith is in God. My faith is not in myself. My faith is not in what I know. My faith is not in what I do. My faith is in him. But it's, you know, it's out of that faith, which is humility, that I'll then seek to want to love. And I'll find myself in love, fulfilling all the requirements of the law. And it's out of my faith in God's love for me that I will want to make a profound difference in the life of others, care for others, do good for others, and so on. And we're going to get into that in the beginning of, the, of Galatians 5, where he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any consequence, rather faith working through love. And so, you know, I ask us, you know, as, as individuals that we, that we uh, ponder, I suppose, continually, you know, upon what basis do I see my relationship with God? And you say, I'm a son of God, you know, I'm a daughter of God, I'm in Christ. I'm no longer anything which would bar me from him, I have this wonderful state. How do I have it? The answer is by faith. And today, at the end of the day, I can say, Lord, I still believe. Yeah. I still believe it's nothing that I do. I still believe it's a, it's a response of your grace that I'm your child. And I'm an heir. I haven't done anything today to earn it anymore, your love. I, what I've sought to do today is my response to your love. I don't wake up feeling condemned. I don't wake up feeling inadequate. I wake up and affirm to myself again that because I have believed, and because I have the witness of the Spirit within me, I'm his child and therefore an heir. I want to live a life not as a slave, but as a free. Because all of us, you know, Paul, I suppose I'll, I'll finish with this, uh, this verse from Romans, Romans 5. And, well, we, we use Romans 8. We use beginning of 5 or Romans 8. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be an offering, a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the Lord might be fully met in us. Do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so there's no condemnation for us. Because our righteousness is not based on what we do, but rather what Christ has done for us. And I reckon it's a battle for most of us at times. When we feel condemned, feel unworthy, feel like giving up, all those things, we come back to the fact that we're sons by grace through faith. That's how we overcome. How we overcome condemnation. We don't overcome condemnation by being perfect. We, we don't overcome condemnation by trying to be more zealous. We overcome it by accepting that in Christ I'm now a child of God through faith. Let's pray. Lord, your servant Paul, even at the end of his life, spoke of the awareness of his sinfulness and all that he'd done and persecuting the church. Lord, he never forgot the grace you showed towards him. preached grace, lived a life of grace. He was strong and empowered by your grace. I pray that will be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.